Oh, Brad, let's go back. I'm cold and I'm frightened. Just a moment, Janet. They may have a telephone. Hello. Oh, uh, hi. My name is Brad Majors. And this is my fiance, Janet Weiss. I, uh, I was wondering if you could help us. Our car is broken down about two miles up the road. Do you have a phone we might use? You're wet. Yes. The rain's been very heavy. Yes. Yes. I think you better for come inside. You're too kind. Oh, Brad, I'm frightened. What kind of place is this? Oh, it's probably some kind of residential for rich PhD students. This way. Are you giving a party? No. You arrived on a rather special night. It's one of the master's astronomy podcasts. Brad, please, let's get out of here. We can't go anywhere until I get to a phone. Then ask the butler or someone. Let's wait a while, Janet. We don't want to interfere with their podcasting. This isn't a funding application board, Brad. They're probably from the University of Manchester with ways different from our own. Brad, I'm cold, I'm wet, and I'm just plain scared. I'm here. There's nothing to worry about. Listen, they're starting. The Jodcast. Leading the way in hour-long astronomy podcasts. With Nick Rattenbury, Stuart Lowe, Tim O'Brien, Hannah Thrall, Ian Morrison, and David Alt. The Jodcast. October issue. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Jodcast. It's Stuart here once again standing in for Dave, who promises to be back for presenting duties next month. Now, first of all I have to apologise because the interview that I promised at the end of last month with one of the creators of Astronomy Picture of the Day won't be in this show. Unfortunately we've had to postpone it until November. But don't worry, we still have a full show lined up for you this month. Later we'll be hearing about the European Space Agency's Smart One spacecraft which crashed into the moon on the 3rd of September. We'll be finding out about the beginnings of the universe, well, perhaps the first 300,000 years. Nick and Tim will be talking telescopes, and Ian will be telling us what we can see in the night sky this month. But first, before all of that, here is the news, this month with Hannah Thrall. In the news this month, the troublesome dwarf planet 2003 UB313 is officially named, the first female space tourist returns from her trip, a Japanese mission to study the sun is launched, Distant galaxies have been spotted by Hubble and Subaru, and we also have the latest news from Mars. On September the 13th, 2003 UB313 was officially named Eris, and her satellite named Dysnomia. Listeners familiar with Greek mythology might appreciate how appropriate these names are. Eris is the Greek goddess of warfare and strife, who stirs up jealousy and envy to cause anger and fighting among men. She was not invited to the wedding of Achilles' parents, Peleus and Thetis, and became so incensed that she decided to cause a quarrel amongst the goddesses that led to the Trojan War. Eris the dwarf planet has been the cause of a certain amount of anger and fighting amongst astronomers. Eris is slightly larger than Pluto, and this reopened the debate about what constitutes a planet. If Pluto were a planet, then Eris would also have to be a planet, making ten known planets in the solar system, with the possibility of more being discovered. 
After much debate and disagreement at the meeting of the International Astronomical Union in Prague this summer, it was decided that objects such as Pluto and Sedna should be classed as dwarf planets, leaving eight regular planets. Some astronomers were so obsessed at the demotion of Pluto they have started a petition to get it reinstated. Eris's satellite has been named Dysnomia, after the daughter of Eris, known as the demon spirit of lawlessness. Eris was discovered by Mike Brown, Chad Trujillo and David Rabinowitz in observations made in October 2003. It is approximately 2,400 kilometres across and currently lies 97 astronomical units from the Sun. Eris has an orbital period of 560 years and is visible from the Earth from late summer to early winter. It has an apparent magnitude of about 19, making it visible with a good amateur telescope. The first female space tourist has successfully completed her excursion to the International Space Station. Anusha Ansari, an Iranian-born American businesswoman, took off from Baikonur in Kazakhstan on the 18th of September. She is reported to have paid more than $20 million for the privilege. As Ansari described herself as an ambassador for attracting private investment into space programmes, her family sponsored the X-Prize, which honoured the first private space plane to make two successful flights into low Earth orbit. Whilst on board the ISS, Ms. Ansari carried out experiments on back pain for the European Space Agency. She returned safely to Earth on the 29th of September. Solar B, a Japanese mission to study the Sun, took off from Uchinora at the southern tip of Japan in the early morning of the 23rd of September. It will take two weeks to transfer to its sun-synchronous polar orbit, where it will be able to observe the sun without nights for eight months of the year. As is customary on Japanese missions, the satellite will be given a new name once it is ready to begin its work. Solar B will be investigating solar flares, hugely energetic explosions in the sun's atmosphere, which release energy equivalent to tens of millions of atomic bombs in just a few seconds. UK mission scientist Professor Louise Hara said, Solar B acts essentially like a microscope, probing the fine detail of what the magnetic field is doing as it builds up to a flare. A solar flare occurs when the contortions of the Sun's magnetic field cause field lines to lift up off the surface of the Sun and collide. When this occurs, a huge amount of energy is released. A blast of radiation at all wavelengths across the electromagnetic spectrum is emitted and charged particles are accelerated out from the Sun into the solar system. Astronomers understand the flaring process quite well, but they cannot currently predict when flares will occur. With information gathered by Solar B, this should change, as astronomers use new insights to make better forecasts of the Sun's behaviour. Two new studies reported in the journal Nature have revealed that galaxies were forming just 700 million years after the Big Bang, but that large clusters of galaxies were rare at this time. Masanori Ie of the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan and colleagues used the Subaru telescope in Hawaii to observe a tiny patch of sky. They observed the oldest known galaxy, named IOK1, which has a redshift of 6.96. Redshift is a phenomenon in which the light emitted by an object is shifted towards the red end of the spectrum, due to the object's motion away from the observer. In the case of very distant objects, such as distant galaxies, the redshift is caused by the expansion of space between the objects and the observer, stretching the wavelength of the emitted photons. This is called the cosmological redshift. The highest confirmed redshift previously had been 6.6. IOK1 is now the oldest galaxy ever detected. Its redshift of 6.96 means that the light observed by astronomers from this galaxy was emitted just 750 million years after the Big Bang. This means that galaxy formation was underway when the universe was just 6% of its current age. 
In another recent Nature paper, Richard Bowens and Garth Ullingworth of the University of California at Santa Cruz used the Hubble Space Telescope to observe an even smaller patch of sky, known as the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. They detected hundreds of galaxies with ages of less than one billion years, but only one candidate galaxy at 700 million years. This lack of galaxies at very high redshifts fits in well with the generally accepted model that describes galaxies being built up by mergers of small galaxies into larger ones, so that at just 700 million years old, the universe was too young for many large luminous galaxies to have formed. A new instrument called DAZZLE will be fitted to the Very Large Telescope in Chile next month, which will hopefully detect objects out to redshift 7.7 or even 8.7. The Hubble Telescope, if it is refurbished soon by NASA, should be able to see out to redshift 10, while Hubble's successor of the James Webb Telescope, which is due for launch early next decade, is expected to reach out to redshift 15. And now the news from Mars. The Mars rover Opportunity has reached the rim of Victoria Crater, its destination since late 2004. Victoria Crater is half a mile wide, about five times wider than Endurance Crater, which the robotic explorer studied for six months earlier in its mission. Victoria Crater has rugged walls with layers of exposed rock. Steve Squires, principal investigator for NASA's Twin Rovers, said, This is a geologist's dream come true. Those layers of rock, if we can get to them, will tell us new stories about the environmental conditions long ago. We especially want to learn whether the wet era that we found, recorded in the rocks close to the landing site, extend further back in time. The way to find that out is to go deeper, and Victoria may let us do that. Opportunity and its twin rover Spirit have been granted an extra year's funding. Their extended mission started on October the 1st, when the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter began its main science phase. Mars Express, the European Space Agency's Mars Orbiter, recently captured images of the face on Mars, made famous by the American Viking 1 Orbiter in 1976. A NASA press release in July 1976 said the formation resembled a human head. NASA scientists knew at the time that the likeness was just a trick of the light, caused by the angle of the sun striking the surface of the rock formation and casting some interesting shadows and the new pictures from the Mars Express of the Cydonia region in which the face is seen confirm this. There does appear to be another rock formation in the same region, which is said to look like a human skull, but I'm not convinced. And some news just in. On Thursday the 28th of September, all the streetlights in Reykjavik and a number of other towns in Iceland were switched off for half an hour so that residents could get a better view of the night sky. Andrew Sneer Magnusson, a writer, got the idea as a way to launch a film festival. An astronomer gave a commentary on national radio about what could be seen while the lights were out. Unfortunately, the weather was rainy and cloudy, but this did not deter the thousands of people who turned out for a spot of stargazing. Thanks, Hannah. That Iceland blackout idea sounds really interesting. It's a shame that the clouds spoiled the view for them. Now, if you can cast your mind back to the start of September, you might remember a plucky European Space Agency mission which crashed into the moon. Now, that doesn't happen every day, so Nick caught up with one of the instrument scientists, Barry Kellett, from the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories near Oxford, to find out just what happened, and what exactly the aims of the mission were. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, and uh, please tell us a little bit about uh, the SMART-1 mission. What was it all about? Okay, SMART-1 is ESA's first uh, technology demonstration mission. It's designed to test uh, technologies that ESA thinks it needs for the future missions. So basically SMART-1 was a test of the BepiColombo mission to, to Mercury, which, which hopefully will go in the next 10 years. Okay, so what was being tested? 
the really exciting thing that was being tested was the new iron dryer that it we used. We got to the moon based on basically on, on sunlight. Um, literally, yes. We converted electricity directly from the sun and used that to power the, the, the iron engine. So this mission was testing a new way of getting probes from place to place. This is true, yes. Using just xenon and, and electricity. In most previous missions, we have probes being propelled by standard chemical engines. You put chemicals together, they go bang, and you're away. What's different about the engine used in the Smart One mission? Well, as you just said, it's like a firework. Typical a chemical engine, bang, and it's gone. Five minutes at maximum, and, and you've, you've run out of energy. The Smart One engine, for example, uh, fired its engine for more than 5,500 hours. That's 180 days, roughly six months. And we, we only used about 80 litres of fuel in that time. To put that in perspective, in missions we've had in the past, uh, say to the moon or to Mars, they use much more than 80 litres of anything to get where they're going. That's right, yes. So, so we are very, very energy efficient. The, the problem with the iron drive is it provides a very, very tiny thrust. So if you can imagine holding a postcard on your fingertips... It's about seven grams of thrust. And that is the thrust. We're trying to move a, a 400 kilogram spacecraft with a, with a postcard. Right. And it's, <laughs> so it's, it takes a long time. But say as the engine has got the time it needs. So, for example, the Bepi Colombo mission, with a chemical engine, uh, chemical rocket, it will take a certain time. With the iron engine added on, for adding this very tiny thrust, we cut the mission by three years. We get there three years early. Right. Everybody wants to save time and get there early. So, so, it, so even though I say it sounds a ridiculous amount of thrust, it's... It, it pays back in, 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 in the mission lifetime. But why does it take less time when you have so little thrust? It's the classic story of, of the tortoise and the hare. You can't afford to power the chemical engine enough to, get, to, to take the shortcuts. Whereas with the slow, steady you know, tortoise approach, you've got the time, you can use the very long arcs of the, of the mission to, to just to sneak ahead of where you would be otherwise, and it, and it pays back in, in, in spades when you, when you get there. Slow and steady wins the race. Every time, yes. How about that? Okay, so what is, how does this thing actually work? How does this drive work? It's called a Hall effect motor. So you've got to imagine a cylinder with magnets going across the cylinder. There's an electric field up and down the cylinder, and the electrons will whiz around like, like a racetrack. Mm -hmm. You then squirt xenon into this. The xenon will get ionized and it will get fired out to the top of the cylinder to give power. It's one of these things where everything's perpendicular to the, the electric field is perpendicular to the magnetic field and, the, and both are perpendicular to the direction of the, of the xenon ions. It's essentially quite basic physics, isn't it? The guy who discovered it obviously was named Hall. Mm -hmm. um, it's his effect. But he was studying just a, an ordinary electric cable. He was trying to work out what carried the charge. In a, he wasn't doing rocket research. <laughs> so he was just studying out what carried the charge in an electric, in electric wire. And, and we've used his effect, we've pinched his effect to make it into a rocket engine. Why did it take so long to develop this technology if the physics is so simple? It's a different approach. I say it's, it requires a lot more um, components to make and a lot more control and, and precision. So it's taken a while, but say both the Russians and, and the Americans and the Europeans are, are developing this technology now, and it's, it will become more, more common. Do you see this as the future of space probe propulsion? It's one of those things. If, if it's the right question, the iron drive is the right answer. So missions to Mercury is the right answer. For certain missions to Jupiter, it's the right answer. For missions to Mars, it probably isn't the right answer. It's, it is, Mars is reasonably straightforward to get to with ordinary engines, and so the, the iron drive probably wouldn't save you much there.
80 litres of xenon gets you to where? Where did it get Smart 1? So we used the Smart 1 ion drive engine to get us from low Earth orbit to the moon. The distance in normal units is about a quarter of a million miles. We travelled about 80 million miles. We actually went around the Earth 320 times. It took us 15 months. So there's two ways of saying this. We hold the world record for being the slowest people ever to go to the moon, <laughs> which is not the good way of saying it. The good way of saying it is that we are the most efficient people to ever go to the moon. We went to, went to the moon on 80 litres of fuel. Right. We're more proud of that than the tortoise record. So we, just, we should point out that Smart One went from low Earth orbit to the moon with this engine. It didn't launch from the Earth's surface using it. It's not a launch engine, but we, we, we took a piggyback on an Ariane. Uh, we got a fairly cheap launch with an Ariane as a piggyback passenger. Now you work at the Rutherford Appleton Laboratories here in the UK. What was your part in the Smart One mission? The engine is nothing at all to do with us. Right. Um, again, we're passengers on Smart One. We, we, we took the chance to go with, with them. Um, what so, did you guys do? So what we did, we provided an X-ray spectrometer called D-Kicks. Now, you might, ask, you might wonder, why would you take an X-ray instrument to the moon? Because obviously the moon is not an X-ray source. Mm-hmm. They're very hot. <clears throat> the reason we did it is for the very simple reason of trying to work out what the moon's made of. Surely we know what the moon is made of. We sent men to the moon. They brought rocks back. We only know, obviously, where... You know, the Americans played safe when they took, sent astronauts there. Apparently the astronauts wanted to come back, which seems to be a bit of a limitation for them. That's quite selfish. <laughs> so I, I don't know what they're doing. Um, yes, and, and it turns out with, with sort of the modern knowledge that we've built up since the 60s, the areas of the moon that Apollo astronauts went to turns out to be remarkably not representative of the moon as a whole. It's, it's like sending someone to, to the Sahara Desert and the Gobi Desert and somewhere else a desert. You'd think that all the Earth is made of desert. So, so we've, got, we've got a slightly distorted view of what the means made of on the samples. Oh, yeah. The other thing is that what the Apollo astronauts took, they actually picked up rocks from the surface. And the one place we can guarantee that that rock didn't come from was where it was picked up from. It, was, it came from a crater somewhere else. It got, everything got flown up, flung everywhere. So it's a very interesting rock. You just have no idea where it came from. So what we're trying to do with D-Kicks and, and its... Um, and it's the sort of daughter which will be launched on an Indian mission in two years' time, called, just called Kicks. We are trying to put these rocks back onto the moon where they came from, so we can then uh, the information then becomes more relevant, more, more, more precise. So you guys developed this spectrometer device, D-Kicks. Sounds like a, an acronym to me. What does D-Kicks mean? Um, it's, yeah, it's got an X in it, which is X-ray. Uh, so it's the demonstration of a compact imaging X-ray spectrometer. Um, again, it's for smart one, it has to be new, te- new technology. We've, we are the first people to fly a new kind of CCD uh, device for X-ray astronomy. Um, our instrument is about a fifth or a sixth of the weight of the comparable Jap- Japanese instruments. For, for, for once, we're actually better than the Japanese at this kind of thing. And it's about a tenth of the weight of the American one. And presumably, this is important if your entire spacecraft is being propelled with a postcard's weight worth of thrust. Given that the entire science payload on Smart One is 15 kilos, mm-hmm. uh, we, I mean, wanted to fly three different instruments. It becomes weight is the only parameter that's interesting. So it has to be the smallest, the lightest, the least massive thing that you can fly. And so, it, so mass was always an issue with, with our instrument. So, what information did you obtain with a D-Kicks instrument? So bizarrely, we looked at the sun. Uh, because we're using the sun as our light source. So the sun is shining on the moon in X-rays, and so we measure the signal from the sun with a very small sensor called XSM. We then look at the, the signal back from the moon with D-kicks, and by comparing the input and the output signals, we can work out, with some fancy modelling, hopefully, uh, we can work out what the moon's made of and get, the, get 
the abundances of the elements on the area of the moon that we're looking at. So some of the X-ray wavelengths from the sun will be reflected off the moon's surface. Some will be absorbed. Presumably you look at what wavelengths were absorbed by the moon's surface to determine its composition. The, the reflected signal, we're not interested in because that's from the sun and we know what the sun looks like. But right. it's, the one, it's a signal that is also absorbed, you're quite right. And it's the absorbed signal that carries a fingerprint of, of the area of the moon that we're looking at. And we're looking at things like magnesium, aluminium, silicon and calcium. So guess the geologists what rocks are made of. They'll tell you it's these four elements. These are the main elements that um, rocks are made of. And by measuring the ratios of these elements, we hope to be able to work out you know, the mineralogy of the, of the, of the moon as, as we see it. Right. So you take the relative abundances of the elements to your friendly lunar geologists and say, so what does this indicate? What rocks are they? They have an idea of the, the kind of minerals that are likely. And they all have all these wonderful names for them, pyroxene and you know, olivine and all these kind of things, which mean nothing to me. But they can't tell precisely from what the information they have which, fa- which particular member of the family it, it, it is. Mm. And so these family members of, the, of a particular group of minerals have particular abundance ratios. And so we have the family picture, but we don't know which member of the family it is that we're looking at. And by using the, the X-ray instrument, we hope to be able to provide that extra piece that it's this particular member of the family that we're looking at. How will this help us? How will this increase our knowledge of the moon? I mean, surely we have a pretty good idea about the moon. In simple terms, the answer is yes, but it's the, the devil's in the detail. Mm. And... There are a lot of very big questions that the answer is we don't know. Uh, and it's, I've been quite surprised myself because I'm not really a lunar person. Uh, how little we know about the moon and how controversial some of the ideas still are. So there are these big questions. And I say, we have these samples on the, on the Earth. We actually have from the Apollo guys. We also have samples of, of the moon from uh, places like Antarctica, where meteorites on the moon have been collected and been identified as lunar. As I said before, we're trying to place these rocks back on the moon Mm-hmm. They can be dated. Some of them are actually very young, relatively speaking. Some of them are only a thousand million years old. That sounds a lot to us. <laughs> but most of the moon is four and a half thousand million years old. Mm-hmm. And so these very young rocks, we want, we want to know where they come from, because you know, which bit of the moon is so young that it's, it's, it's these. And so it's this, this placing the rocks back into their context that will provide geologists and, and lunar geologists a lot, lot of new information. What do we not understand about the moon? I suppose the biggest question is, where did the moon come from? When Apollo went to the moon, they knew what the question was. They had three models of where the moon, where the moon came from, and within about a year of getting the results back, all three models were dead. So instead of being a, a great leap forward, as Armstrong told us, in fact it was a great leap backwards, <laughs> and for about five years we had absolutely no idea where the moon came from. And then this new theory came out, this what's called the Mars Impact Theory came out. Right. This states that as the Earth was forming, the Earth was very young, very hot, a big ball of molten rocks, it got hit by an object about the size of Mars, or about a quarter of the size of the Earth. This kind of like, like the skin of a rice pudding, kind of knocked the skin off the Earth, mm. flung it into space, flung itself, most of itself, into space as well, and then from that debris, you make the moon. Now I say... Doing the modelling for that is quite horrendous. And so I said, the devil's in the detail of how you do the modelling. And I said, there were certain questions about whether you go this way or that way, depending on you know, certain circumstances. That's what we're trying to do, trying to help. I say, as I said before, we are looking at magnesium. Magnesium is a very light element. So if the entire moon melted after it was formed, magnesium will float. Right. Now, one of the other elements we can see occasionally, only occasionally, unfortunately, we can see iron. Now, iron is a very heavy element. 
it's, it does the opposite. It will sink. Mm. So by looking at these two elements in various areas of the moon, we can work out, did the whole moon melt? Did the iron and magnesium separate out? Or is there another story? Now, at the moment, most people think the entire moon melted. It's called the magma ocean theory. Right. And hopefully, by looking at this, these two elements, we'll be able to work out whether or not that theory is true. And that will then rule out half the theories, and we can concentrate on the other half and just make progress slowly, step by step. So the decision as to whether the moon was formed in scenario A or scenario B, and is that finally balanced on the exact proportion of elements you will determine using Smart One? That's the, the, the plan, yes. <laughs> That's very exciting. We look forward to the results. Now, we heard a lot about the demise of Smart One. It was very spectacular. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, again, as you probably tell, Smart One was a mission kind of on the cheap. Um, so we only had 80 litres of fuel to get to the moon. When we got there, we had very little fuel left. Um, so we got into the best orbit we could to do the science that we wanted to do. That orbit was not circular. It was a, a highly elliptical orbit. The, the downside of that is that it's highly unstable. Right. And there's things like uh, the planet Jupiter and the sun will pull on that orbit and make it decay. Mm-hmm. So it, we would have crashed after about a year if nothing had been done. So we used the very last dregs of the, the fuel tank by shaking it about and doing all kinds of fancy things. We got an extra bit of fuel out to give us an extra extension. Unfortunately, having done that once, we can't do it again. So, this, so if we had done nothing, we'd have crashed in the middle of August on the far side of the moon where nobody could see us. Mm-hmm. And we thought this was kind of dull and boring. We, if, you wanted to, if you're going to go out, you might as well go out with a bang. And so we used a little bit of the the fuel that was used actually for steering the spacecraft, not, not for powering it. And by sort of doing fancy manoeuvres with, the, with the, the, these little jets, we were able to get the orbit to extend by an extra two weeks to the 3rd of September, which was a Sunday. Uh, and as everybody knows probably that we crashed on a little mountain on the area of the moon. It was actually in the dark, actually it was being lit by Earthshine. But we, we definitely hit the surface right. and uh, made a little splash. Now, the point of this wasn't just for fun, was it? There was some scientific basis for this, wasn't there? So there are people who study impacts. And, of course, we'd actually you know, understand the, the, the nature of these impacts because some of them might actually hit it us, and uh, mm. that's the, the danger that people are worried about. So we, this is a highly controlled experiment. We know exactly how big Smart One was, how heavy it was. We know exactly what speed it was going. So all the parameters that you usually don't know for an impactor, you've now got. Mm. So hopefully the people who, if someone goes back and photographs the hole that we made, the people who do the modelling can then use that information to, to work out how well they can model the situation right. and, and hopefully learn from that for, for their own benefit as well. Were people observing the impacts of, of Smart One? Uh, it, was, it was being observed by uh, professional astronomers in Hawaii and uh, in California and by a whole bunch of lunar, what you might call lunatics <laughs> uh, in America. The amateur guys are keen on the moon. So hopefully a whole bunch of people saw this yeah. and will give us the, the answer back soon. Now, presumably... Uh, Smart One would have sent up a big plume of stuff when it impacted. The very early results that we've seen from Hawaii do show uh, that we did send up a, a kind of little dust tail that went ahead, in, ahead of us in the direction we were travelling. Probably about 80 kilometres it, it travelled. We were hoping that it would travel upwards right, <laughs> and, right. hit, and, and come out of the shadow of the sun and into sunlight and be very bright. It that doesn't appear to have done that. It appears to have gone straight forward and so I've been a little, slightly faint. Uh, and so maybe not quite as useful as we uh, were hoping for. Oh, no, not to worry. Tell me a little bit more about the next mission you mentioned, uh, Bepi Colombo. That's 
the plan as I last understood, yes? So it's essentially the same question. Where did Mercury come from? Mercury is a weird planet. It's, it's kind of an, an end member of the set. Compared to the Earth and, and Venus and Mars, it's, it's, it's nearly all core. Um, it's got a very thin outer layer, mantle and, and crust. And so how did Mercury form? What's it made of? All the usual questions that we don't know any answers to. And so there, there will be an, certainly an X-ray instrument on, on Baby Colombo, as well as cameras and other instruments to, make, to, to learn about Mercury. Mercury is probably, with Pluto, the least well-known and least understood planets in, in the solar system. This is a ESA mission, a European Space Agency mission. Yes. Has it been funded? It's part of what's called ESA's core program, so it should go, certainly, uh, but it's incredibly expensive to go to Mercury. Uh, and so there are still some uh, doubts and question marks about exactly when it goes, and maybe even if it goes, it might still get cancelled. But it is still on schedule for like 2015 or 2014 right. launch. Uh, well, one mission at a time. You've got lots of data to look at from Smart One, and we look forward to hearing the results. Thank you very much indeed for coming and talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks, Nick. Now, from one space mission to another. This time it's NASA's Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe, or WMAP. WMAP is a cosmology mission whose aim is to study the very early universe, just 300,000 years after the Big Bang. Now, 300,000 years might sound like a very long time, but compared to the current age of the universe, 13,700 million years, it's pretty near the beginning. Earlier in the month, I talked to one of the WMAP team, Joanna Dunkley, of Princeton University in the United States, to find out more. Joe, welcome to the Jodcast. Hi there, thank you. So can you perhaps give us a bit of background to tell us what exactly is the cosmic microwave background, the CMB as astronomers call it? Sure, so um, the CMB, it's, it's basically our first, the first light we can see of the universe. It's, um, it's light that has been, it's been travelling to us for about 13 billion years, um, since almost the beginning of the universe in fact. And it's basically like a relic, it's like a picture, it's like a snapshot of the universe when it was only a few hundred thousand years old. It comes from a time, so when the universe, we think, we think the universe came from a big bang, a really, really hot, dense state, when it's just a, a yeah, very, very hot, dense universe. Right. Um, and, and so we see light that basically has been traveling since, since the universe was, was just a few hundred thousand years old, traveling all the way through space until we see it now. So why does it come from that particular time? So, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, broadly, we live in an expanding universe that has been cooling down as time has progressed. So, as you go, as you wind time back to, to zero, back to the Big Bang, the universe would be very, very hot. So, we think that the universe then started to cool down. Uh, because it's expanding, there's more space. Exactly. And it's very, it's very hot and um, very energetic. And as it expands and cools down, then you can actually start forming atoms. So everything that we see around us now is, is made up of atoms. So they're the, the neutrons and protons and electrons. Exactly, yeah. Joining together in a little gang. All joined together in a little gang, exactly. <laughs> all stuck together to make atoms that, that then we're all made of. And they couldn't exist when the universe was very hot. Exactly, because when you um, heat up an atom beyond a certain point, then you can basically split up the electrons from the protons and neutrons in the middle. And so you get this whole just like sea of electrons and protons all zooming around and not making atoms because they're not hot enough. Right, so a bit like on the, the surface of the sun, a plasma. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So the whole, whole universe was, was pretty much like that. Yeah, so when we look at the sun now, for example, the light that we see from the sun 
is just traveling through the space in between us and the sun until we hit our eyes, so we can see it. But if you put a whole load of those split-up electrons and protons in between us and the sun, for example, the light wouldn't be able to travel straight to our eyes. So it sort of bounces off the electrons and the protons? Exactly, yeah. So it'd be, it'd be bouncing off them, would be sort of scattered off in all different directions. So a bit like fog or mist scatters the, the light? Yeah, huge big fog in between, in between us and what we're looking at. And so the, the fog is from the, the time when the universe was quite warm and you had all that, those split-up atoms? Yeah, until exactly the point when atoms could then form. You combine all the electrons and protons together, form an atom, and then at that split point in time, from that point onwards, then light could then travel through space, because space is now made up of cooled-down atoms. So it passes straight past the atoms and, and through space. So light will just travel in a straight line wherever, it, wherever it's going in the universe. It, it's throughout the universe and will just travel until it hits someone's telescope. For us, it's travelled for 14 billion years until it's hit our telescopes here on Earth. That's quite a long time for it to be travelling. It's a really long time. It's kind of, I mean, it's, in a way, it's, it kind of comes to a sad end when it hits our telescopes. It tells us a huge amount about the universe, but its, it's journey is over when it gets to us. So the, these photons of light that were, you're picking up with your, your telescope, they're coming from this time a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, yes. about 14 billion years ago. So what do they actually tell you, apart from you just, you've just you detected light? Is there something else you can get from them? Yeah, they do. So you're essentially taking a snapshot of the universe when it was just a few hundred thousand years old. Does it all look the same everywhere? Or? Almost the same, but not quite. That's, that's the really crucial thing, is that um, the first point, I guess, is that it looks almost the same everywhere. It, so this, this light is, is three degrees Kelvin, which is minus 270 degrees centigrade. Very cold. <laughs> very, very cold. And the fact that when we look in each direction in the sky, we see the same temperature to, to a very good degree tells us it's good evidence that the Big Bang did happen, that our idea about the expansion of space from a, from a point that did happen. But, but more than that, the light is not completely uniform. It's not, it's not all exactly minus 270 degrees. Right. It has tiny, weeny fluctuations, a millionth of a degree, Difference in different directions in the sky when we, when we look out. So that's incredibly um, uniform. It's pretty much the same everywhere then, but just these very, very small dis- differences between them. Yeah, and that was the most exciting thing. When this was first discovered, this was a really important piece of evidence for the Big Bang, this uniformity. When it was first discovered, there was no evidence for these slight deviations. The main result was that it was uniform over the whole sky. And that was in the 1960s, I think. Yeah, that was 1960. So um, actually, it was a lucky discovery. It had been predicted that this radiation should exist, but in the sort of 1450s, people didn't think that it would be observable. But then in the 1960s, these two men, Penzias and Wilson, were just carrying radio observations of our galaxy. And they basically detected this, this offset, basically an extra little signal they couldn't explain. And you'd expect to see more radiation if you point telescope towards the middle of our galaxy than away from it. Because our galaxy gives out radio waves and... Microwaves. Yeah, so, so there's loads of stars, there's dust, there's all sorts of things that should be sending out microwave radiation. But wherever they looked with the telescope, even at things they thought should send out more radiation, they saw the same amount, regardless of which direction in the sky they were pointing at the telescope. They first of all thought that this was just an error with their telescope. They, they thought that this was just something to be, to be fixed. They thought that um, they had pigeons nesting in their telescope. Um, they thought it was the pigeons creating this, this spurious signal. The pigeon droppings, perhaps? Yeah, exactly. First of all, the pigeons, and then the pigeon droppings. <laughs> <laughs> and they tried to get rid of the pigeons, but even when they got rid of them, they still saw the signal. And discussion with 
was a lucky discovery, really. Yeah, yeah, it was. And an amazing discovery because that was just huge validation for the idea that the, the Big Bang happened. And that's, that gave us this, this measurement of the uniformity, the, yeah. this microwave background radiation was, was the same in all directions. Yes, and it had a particular... If you look at how much light you get at different frequencies, it has a thing called a black body spectrum. Basically, it's, it's a very particular pattern of light that you only get if, um, if all the universe had been basically squashed together in, in one point and had contact with each other. Like, like if you put a cube of ice into a glass of water, you, you have to have everything in contact to have this, um, to have this particular, particular kind of emission of light. You wouldn't get this particular pattern of temperatures if you hadn't had this hot, dense state in the, in the early universe. Okay, so things moved on from the 1960s and that original detection. What was the next big thing that happened in, in cosmology? There are, there are other ways of measuring cosmological properties of our, of our universe. In terms of the CMB, uh, the microwave background, um, COBE was the next big step. It was in 1990, around then. Um, it was a NASA experiment, a NASA satellite, to measure the microwave background of rural space, so looking at every direction of the sky, and to really go after the little fluctuations, the little ripples of the temperature around that, that uniform 3 Kelvin. Right, so comparing different directions and seeing if some directions are slightly have slightly more and slightly less, and that's really important because the universe we see around us today is, is very irregular. It's full of people like us, and it's <laughs> stars, galaxies, clusters of galaxies. It's not smooth. You need some mechanism of clumping them into structure. The universe is quite clumpy. The universe is clumpy, and you need some mechanism of making that happen. So say you start from a squishing all the universe down into a very hot, smooth ball of electrons and protons, then you need to get that to somehow form structure later on in the universe. Well, what we, what we think happened is that you actually, had, you actually would have to have tiny, weeny ripples in that early on hot, dense state. Right, so there were slightly more atoms in one place than there were in another. another. Yes, I mean, at that point, not, not atoms, just, just... The electrons and protons. Yeah, slightly more in one place than another, so that later on gravity could take the regions where there was slightly more matter, and gravity could then pull that region together. Right to grow over, over billions of years to form eventually stars and, and galaxies. So by looking at the little tiny ripples at that very early point, we know that they will then grow towards being the structure we see today. You get slightly different ripples, so a different pattern of little fluctuation, depending on what the universe is made of and what mechanism could have caused those ripples to form in the first place. So the things we'd like to know are the com what's the universe made of and how old is it and how long it's been expanding for. And if you put in like a different amount of matter in the universe or if it has a different age, it will leave a different signature of little tiny ripples in, a temp in, that, in the temperature of you that you measure of, that, of, those, of the microwave background. Right. Okay. So by looking at that particular signature of ripples, you, you can work out how old the universe is, perhaps. Yeah. And, it, and, it, and, and, and its contents, what it's made of. So what if, it's, if it's made of normal matter... So that's the stuff that we're made of. That's stuff we're like, exactly. So there's this, there's this, there's, what we've managed to measure with the CMB are remarkably precise quantity values of things that we don't necessarily understand. <laughs> right. Well, that's good because science is all about looking at things that we don't understand and trying to work out what's going on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we need to try and, try and understand what we don't understand. Um, so we think that the universe is made up of, yes, normal matter like, like us, and our planets and our stars that we see around us in the sky. So that, that's what we call normal, normal matter. One of the, the, the 
key measurements we get is the total density of the universe. On average, how many atoms there are per cubic centimeter or cubic meter or some volume. So say, take, take, a, take a volume of the universe, how much matter is there in it? Or what's, what's its density? I, I would guess it was not very dense. Not very dense. <laughs> yeah, it comes out to be about, on average, about three hydrogen atoms every cubic meter. So we measure that total density by looking at the pattern of these, these temperature fluctuations very accurately. So you can then say, well, there's a missing amount of, of matter. Dark matter is, well, we don't know what it's made of, what kind of particles it is. We just observe its effect, but it appears to be a, a sort of matter which behaves gravitationally normally. Like if you put a whole clump of dark matter somewhere, we'd expect other bits, other matter to be pulled towards it in the same way that we're pulled towards the Earth, or the Earth is pulled into orbit around the sun. The, the gravity seems to be the same. Right, so it would help make the universe a bit more clumpy. Yes, yes. And so if we look at the little, little patterns um, in the micro background, then you would need to have this dark matter there yeah, to make it to make it clumpy. Um, but there's, and there's also, there's also this stuff called dark energy as well, which is also confusing as cosmologists and is, like a, is a really important question at the moment. Because dark energy seems to be making our universe expand faster. It's like stuff that has negative pressure, stuff that's pushing, pushing the universe outwards. Right, so making galaxies move away from each other. Yeah, yeah. Whereas normally you would expect, if you just had normal normal matter that, that we know and understand, you wouldn't expect them ever to be pushed apart because they're made of mass, which gravitationally pulls towards each other. So from the, from the micro background, we, we measure it to be 74% of the university made up of this stuff. And these results come from, from the um, instrument that you're working on now? Actually, yes, yes. So, so Kirby back in 1990 gave us the first measurement of what these quantities could be. So it gave us a reasonable, a pretty good estimate. Just even by noticing that these, finding these fluctuations existed was a, was a key advance. Now this experiment, WMAP, that I'm working on, has basically measured the micro background to so much more precision that we're able to figure out these numbers much, much better. Just out of interest, where, where is WMAP? WMAP, yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's a million miles away. <laughs> it's... So it's a NASA satellite that was launched in 2001, and it's at a, a point called L2, which is a stable point. It's, it's basically opposite the Earth to the Sun. So if we go out, out from the Earth, the opposite direction to the Sun, a million miles. So beyond the Moon. Yeah, the Moon's only about a quarter of that distance or so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, sitting, so it's far away. It took about three months to get there after it was launched from the States. And so it's sitting out there and it's pointing away from the sun. So it's important that it doesn't look at the sun because it's trying to measure light from everywhere else. And you said it was trying to look at things at a minus 270 degrees. Yeah. So <laughs> you don't want to look at the sun. <laughs> you don't look at the sun. You need to look away. It's a very delicate instrument. Yeah. And so it can measure these little deviations about the, the uniform temperature of a millionth of a degree. That's very impressive. A lot more accurate than a thermometer you'd have at home. More accurate than a thermometer. Um, it can also measure its polarisation. So... When light scatters off, you know, the bonnet of a car or something, that's polarised. And when we use our sunglasses, they, they basically um, help to remove some of the glare by filtering out different polarised directions of the light. So basically, if you look at, there's more light coming from different one direction than from twist around 90 degrees. There's, yeah, there's, there's different amounts of light. So you can measure how polarised light is if you make your measurements in the right way. You can measure both its temperature and its polarisation. So what does the polarisation tell you about the light? Presumably it's not reflecting off a, a huge celestial car bonnet. <laughs> no, no, we think that the polarisation comes from, um, well, two points in time. 
we do expect there to be both um, little ripples in the temperature and the polarization. Because it's not uniform, slightly more matter in some places than others, um, figure out that should, you should get a, a polarized signal. But actually as well, you expect the light to be slightly polarized again at a point in, in the cosmic history when the, when the stars first turn on. So we think that about 400 million years after the Big Bang, the first stars started to light up, to ignite. Pretty soon after the Big Bang in... Yeah, so if we think, yeah, if we think of the, the whole age of the universe as 14 billion years, 400 million years is young. So we, we think stars have been around for a pretty long time. You expect the microwave light passing, just traveling through the universe, when the stars first switch on, that gives an extra a boost to how polarized the light is. Right, so the stars are affecting that, that signal that you're looking at from the, the cosmic microwave background. Yes, um, and so we can get a handle on when those stars first switched on from measuring the polarization. That's actually very interesting that you can you can do that from just looking at how polarized this light is. Yeah, it's really, yeah. It, the trouble is it's much harder because it's 100 times, the signal is 100 times fainter than the temperature signal. And the temperature signal is this one millionth of a degree difference. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's 100 times fainter than that. It's small, very small. So it's only been the last few years that we've been able to do this. And so that, that's, I guess, one of the new results from WMAP. WMAP released one year of data back in 2003. So that was the first um, year of, of results that have been all compiled and analysed and processed. Yeah, so that, that was a year, of, a year of processing results. It was from a, a collecting data for, for, for a year, and they released the data in 2003. And they had made polarisation measurements then, but hadn't measured them in so much detail, but the focus was temperature measurements. Right, they're the, the easier things, I guess, to, to get than this signal, which is 100 times fainter. Yes, and that was what the different was, was optimised to, to work best for, for measuring temperature deviations. And that gave sort of unprecedented accuracy on the, the contents of the universe, the expansion rate, and how it's developed, basically, over the 14 billion years. So those, those precise numbers were a huge advance. Earlier this year, the team released results in, in March from three years of analysis and from better measurements of, of this polarization signal. There was the first year results and then there were the third, or three years' worth of results. Yes. Was there a reason why there wasn't a, a two years' worth of results in the middle? Um, well, one of the main reasons was that the big advance in the three-year results was, was measuring maps, so measuring the polarization over the whole sky making maps of how polarized the light is over the whole sky. And because of how small the signal is, it's said 100 times fainter than the temperature signal, it's much harder. And so analyzing the data requires a lot of a lot more advances in understanding all the, the experiments very, very well. Right. Because right. basically we're looking through the galaxy. We're, we're sitting in a Milky Way galaxy and we're looking out at light that's coming in from outside the galaxy. And so our galaxy has stuff in it that's sending out microwave light at us too. So we have to clean up very carefully. Right, so it's a bit like trying to observe the stars from a large city um, with all its light pollution. Yes. Um, you, if you, you've got to try and almost subtract away all the lights that the city's pumping out into the sky. Yes. You're trying to remove all that, that extra light to look at the very faint things in the sky. In the sky, yeah. So you have to, you have to work very carefully work out how much light's coming from, you know, the city to get, to get, past, to get past it and to look at the signal we want. So that was, that was a major advance, was to really be sure that signal we're seeing, this polarized signal, didn't come from our galaxy, because the galaxy is it's very comparable, the signal from our galaxy, the signals coming outside from, um, from the Big Bang. 
that that took that took a while. But in doing so, not only have we now got a better handle on when those first stars switched on, as I was saying, that's one thing we learned from polarization. But with that polarization data and three years more of collecting the temperature data, we're trying now to understand what happened before the CMB form in the first, you know, trillionth of a second of the Big Bang. That's the next stage of, of what we're trying to do in, in, in cosmology, I guess, or one of them. Right, that's very impressive looking back before this light actually set off. Yeah, trying to infer backwards what happened before, how you could see the pattern or how that pattern could have formed from the physics that was going on during the first fraction of a second. There's one fairly simple to understand test in that we're looking for how big these, these ripples in the temperature or the polarization are. And what we can do is split them up into different scales so we can see how big the ripples are on big scales in the sky. So can you imagine looking out over the whole sky and splitting up into patches? Right. So the whole sky into four patches or a hundred smaller patches or a thousand even smaller patches. What we would expect is um, on average to have the same size ripples on different scales of the sky. Right. There, there, are little, there are physical processes that will then mess that around a bit, <laughs> but on average you would expect it in the very early universe to perhaps have um, yeah, the same amount of, of, of ripples on big scales as small scales. And is that what's measured? Well, what we're now measuring are the first indications that it's not quite true, that you have slightly smaller ripples on smaller scales. Currently, our best, our best explanation for what was happening in the first fraction and second of the universe is a thing called inflation. So we, we think that, or this is an idea that's been around since the 1980s, um, as an explanation for what was going on at the Big Bang. So space expands exponentially fast, which means it's, it's, it's expanding faster than the speed of light during the first trillionth of a second. And so we're, you're expanding space incredibly fast, much faster than current, currently we think space expanding, but at much slower, at a much slower right. rate. So this inflation would be much, much faster expansion for a very short period of time. If this, if this scenario happened, if inflation happened, which is something we're, we're really trying to test, you would expect this really tiny difference, this very small signal in terms of how non-uniform the power or how, how big fluctuations are on different, on different scales. So by comparing predictions from theoretical cosmologists yeah. to what you actually measure on the sky yeah. um, from the universe, then you've been able so to... So actually, it's, it's tantalising. We, we talk about things and how confident we are in measuring something. At the moment, from what we observe with the new WNAT data, we can say probably with 95% confidence that there is slightly less power at smaller scales, giving the impression that inflation might have happened rare that you can say something definitely happened, but you can say something is more and more confident. And statistically, we have good evidence. Everything we see is pointing with inflation. That's what many cosmologists are working on at the moment, are looking for more signatures of inflation. Will WMAP be able to, to detect that, or is it just too, too faint a signal to pick up? It's very faint. What we can do is, is put up a limit. It's possible that if the signal is, is big, if the energy of inflation was, was big, which theoretically is possible, that with another few years of observing the W map, we could see the signal. And that would be very exciting. It would be very exciting. It's, it's, it's probably more likely that the, the next generation of CMB experiments are more likely to see it. The experiments dedicated to measuring the polarization and measuring it at a very, very high sensitivity. Anyway, all this detective work sounds very exciting. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it, is, it is very exciting. And it's, having, having those experiments 
with such sensitivity and such such precision, it's, it means we can really nail down these, these numbers very well and, and start learning. And the idea that we can learn about the first trillionth of a second of the universe. And it's just staggering to me. It is staggering. I mean, but it also leaves, obviously, a huge number of open questions. I mean, we don't know why. Even if this inflation happens, we need to understand why. If this dark energy exists, we need to understand what it is. There's an awful lot of questions we need to, need to answer. But at least a simple picture is, is falling into place. Well, all these questions are, are what makes science exciting. And the next generation will hopefully answer some of them and probably produce a whole lot more. <laughs> yeah, but that's, 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 that's the fun of it, isn't it? Yep. All right, well, thank you very much for talking to us. No problem at all. It was a pleasure. Now, Tim thought that he could disappear to foreign climes to avoid asking astronomer this month, but ever-persistent Nick managed to track him down and put your questions to him. Okay, now it's time for Ask an Astronomer with Dr. Tim O'Brien, who's coming for, uh, to us from Poland, Turin in Poland. Is that right? Hi, Tim, are you there? I'm here. Yeah, fantastic. It's sunny Turun. Sunny Turun. Why are you in Poland? <laughs> Actually, a conference, uh, a symposium for the European VLBI network, which is the uh, network of radio telescopes across Europe that we connect together to make very sort of uh, sharp images of, of astronomical objects in the radio. Right. So carry on the tradition of astronomers finding nice places to go for their conferences. That's right, yeah, it's a lovely place. Birthplace of Copernicus. Birthplace of Copernicus, of course. Yeah. A question comes from Alex. He's got a question about what to look at in the night sky. How can he find out what's up in the night sky? What, how can he help? Yeah, so I think um, I think this guy, uh, Alex, bought, uh, just bought himself a small telescope, and he was wondering, he'd been told that there were no planets around for him to look at, which he's a bit disappointed about. But uh, he wanted to know what else there might be to look at in the night sky. Now, what I uh, would suggest, particularly if you've got a computer at home, an ideal thing to do is to uh, download uh, one of the free software packages that will actually tell you exactly what's up in the night sky at any time. So the, the one we, we often recommend is a, a quite a nice, pretty pretty one that, uh, that's completely free as well, which is a big advantage, um, is something called Stellarium. Mm-hmm. So that's S-T-E-L-L-A-R-I-U-M. And you can download that from the web, www.stellarium.org. Uh, and what you do is you put in your location on the Earth, uh, and you know you, it takes your computer time, and it will actually generate a sort of simulated view of the sky from your location, and you can then you can sort of It'll show it you for the current time, but you can also sort of fast forward and, you know, look at what it's going to be like later in that same night or the next day or the next week or, in fact, the next hundred years or whatever, whatever you're interested in. Um, so that's, that's really probably the best answer. I mean, the other, the other things you can do, of course, we have our own night sky um, bit of the, uh, bit of the Jodcast, of course, yes. and the night sky webpages that go with it. So uh, that's another place to look for ideas on what might be up and about. Right. And so how easy is it to go from what you look up on these um, uh, Stellarium uh, programs um, to actually going out at night and then trying to figure out, well, what's what up there? Can you print these things out? What, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, what, what probably what you ought to do uh, really is to get a very basic feel for what the night sky looks like. Um, so really, that means sort of identifying some of the major constellations, uh, and you've really got to uh, get yourself attuned to the sort of scale of these things on the sky. So have a feel for, you know, if you were trying to recognise, you know, you go for a major constellation like. Um, like the plough, you know, like Ursa Major, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, identify that. That's always visible. It's always going to be in the north because it, it never never sets below the horizon. So that's that's one to, 
that's one to look out for first of all. But then other ones like Orion, for example, or the Square of Pegasus or something. Try try and identify some of these major these major constellations, and then you'll you'll get a, a reasonable idea from one of these software packages. You can sort of identify where the object is that you're looking for with respect to some of these other stars. So it's actually quite good fun to sort of um, do this thing called star hopping, where you you basically look at a sky map like you might get on one of these packages or one of the websites, and it would show you where the location of the object you're interested in is relative to nearby stars. So the thing to do is to like, you know, find the stars, you know, almost visually without your telescope that you're interested in, the sort of constellation, and then you might go to um, either a pair of binoculars or maybe the finder scope on your on your on your telescope so you get a reasonably wide field of view, find the star you, you, you already know, and then you sort of move, hop along from one star to the next, going to fainter stars until you find the you know, the particular object, whether it be a galaxy or a, or a planetary nebula or something like that that, that that you're interested in. I mean, that's quite satisfying, but it's, but it's you know, a little time-consuming. But at least it gives you a, 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 ba- a baseline, a background of the, what the, the night sky looks like, and you can navigate your way from place to place without using a telescope, yeah. without anything, just uh, getting yeah. a feel for what, what it looks like up there. Yeah, I think, that's, I think, that is, I think it's the way to, way to start, really. Um, the other thing that Alex was asking about was how to, how to use. He had the, you know, you're saying there's two dials on the telescope. Right. Yes. Um, what what do what do they mean? You know, how do you how do you dial in the the position of your source? Basically, that depends on what type of how your telescope is mounted. You know, to what how it's attached to the the tripod or whatever you've got it on. Um, and there's there's two main types of telescope mount. There's something called an, an altaz mount, altitude and azimuth. So that would be where the telescope just moves relative to the horizon. So you, basically one of the dials would represent the number of degrees above the horizon that the object is. So that, that's called altitude or elevation. Right. And then the other dial will be used for, for sort of turning the telescope around the horizon. So if you started with the telescope pointing north, you'd be at what's called zero degrees azimuth. Right. And then as you go towards the east, directly east would be 90 degrees, directly south 180, west 270, and then back to 360 or, or zero when you point back north again. So those two those two angles, which those two dials would represent, would give you the current position of any any object on on the sky. So so basically altitude is up and down and uh, azimuth is yeah. around and about. So. Around, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. And, the, and the only problem with that and the, um is that obviously because the, the Earth is spinning round all the time, the position of an object on the sky relative to the horizon changes. It rises in the east, moves across the sky through the south, generally sets in the, sets in the west. So if you looked up the altitude and azimuth of one of one of you, you know, the thing you were interested in on one of these packages, it would tell you the altitude, but that would only be true at the instant you were looking it up. So if you want something that's a bit more, um, you know, less ephemeral than that, then uh, you need to uh, use something like uh, something called the equatorial coordinate system, right. and 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 that would rely on you having uh, an equatorial mount. So this is different to an, an Altair's mount. This is the second type of mount now. Yeah, well, you, the way you can recognize it, basically, it's as, it's as if the base of the telescope is tilted at an angle, and that angle has to be set to be equal to your latitude on the Earth. Right. Uh, and it, it basically co- corrects, for, corrects for your latitude so that then um, you can point, if your telescope's pointed straight up relative to this angled mount, then you're actually pointing straight at the, the, the point directly above the Earth's north pole. And if your telescope was pointed sort of parallel to this angled mount, you'd be pointing at stars or objects that are directly above the Earth's equator. Uh, and then as the Earth spins around, your telescope just has to follow it in one 
direction, um, you know, parallel to the sort of the, the angled mount of the telescope. So those those two dials that you've got on the telescope then become the two coordinates in this new coordinate system, this equatorial coordinate system on the sky, which is actually just like latitude and longitude on the Earth, but sort of expanded out onto the sky. So you might call it celestial latitude and longitude, but um, astronomers call, call the equivalent of latitude is called declination, mm -hmm. and the equivalent of longitude is, is right ascension. And those two numbers you would get in your software package as well, and they would be sort of true forever, roughly, given, give or take the fact that the Earth's axis wobbles a bit. So, but generally, that would be true. You don't have to worry about what time of day or, or, or what time of night it is when you when you when you go to look and where you set that into the dials. All right, well, that's pretty good, isn't it? So, if you had your um, favourite stellar package open in front of you, you know, perhaps before you go out observing, and you see that, oh, okay, so I know that Orion is high in the sky this time of year, and there's a number of interesting things in there. Let's say it's a nebula, maybe, or a globular cluster, or something like that. You note yeah. down, uh, the, let's say, the equatorial coordinates in uh, yep. right ascension and declination, and then what, yep. you go out to your telescope and just dial it up, or, yep. or what? Yeah, effectively. I mean, it depend, I mean, assuming your telescope isn't computer-controlled, because, of course, if it's computer-controlled, then, you know, you just, you just, you just type in, either type in the coordinates, type in the name or whatever, and the telescope will drive to it. Assuming you've got to do that manually, then you'll look on, your, on, your, on one of the dials, you'll have degrees, and it will go from... Uh, there'll be a naught degrees in the middle, and there'll be a plus 90 at once at the top and a minus 90 at the bottom. And that's basically plus 90 would be the north celestial pole directly above the north pole. Zero would be directly above the equator. Minus 90 would be directly above the south pole. And then the other dial will be this right ascension one. And typically that's going to be in units of time, which is perhaps a bit confusing. Um, so it'll be 24 hours around a full circle, mm. um, which is equivalent to 360 degrees. And it's obviously because the Earth spins around in 24 hours. So astronomers t t tend to use that, uh, use time units for that. So you'll see right ascension in so many hours and minutes and so on. If your right ascension dial is calibrated in hours, you can go straight to it. If your right ascension dial is in degrees, like not to 360, you'll have to work out that, you know, for example, if, if the right ascension was six hours, that's a, a quarter of 24 hours, so you'd be a quarter of the way around 360 degrees, so you'd be 90 degrees, basically. So you'd be 90 degrees around. Typically, most people have a very simple telescope, probably not um, computer-controlled uh, drives yeah. on the mount or anything like that. This is a little telescope on a little tripod, and from... Uh, from what I remember when I was uh, fooling around with, with similar sort of telescopes, what you'd do is that you'd um, try and work out the, where the object is that you want to look at relative to something which you can identify quite easily. So yeah. a bright star or a bright group of stars. And you'd look at that through a little finder scope and then go uh, left a bit, down a bit, left a bit, down a bit. And then hopefully at some point in the field of view, uh, you, would, you would just work your way towards uh, the, the object that you want by just sort of going from point to point to point, which you can recognize from your star map, and then go, well, it should be just down into the left from where I am currently, so maybe that's what I'm looking at. I think I'd recommend, I mean, that's this star hopping idea. You hop from one star to the next to find the object you're interested in. And I think I'd recommend that as the, the thing to try and do. I mean, this is, that's really only if you're looking for these, you know, particularly faint things. I mean, if you're looking at something, of course, you know, it's, it's great to look at some bright objects like Jupiter or Saturn or the moon or something like that. You know, you're going to get a lot out of that. One of the things that was up at the moment in the east, sort of earlier in the evening, was the Andromeda galaxy, for example. Mm. You know, that's bright enough to actually see with the, with the unaided eye if, you, if you're in a dark sky location. But certainly through a small telescope or even binoculars, you're going to see that you're going to find that fairly easy. That's a good test of this star hopping thing. You sort of start at the 
top left of the square of Pegasus and hop a few stars along and a bit to the right, and sure enough, that there it'll be. But uh, yeah, as you get better, you can sort of, you know, find some famous, uh, famous other nebulae and galaxies mm. uh, in the same way. It's, it is quite, you know, it can take a while for some of the fainter ones, but uh, you know, it's pretty satisfying when you actually find them. Yeah. Now, the, um, you mentioned a couple of the, the planetarium programs, at least Stellarium anyway, the free one, yeah. and also the, the, the Jodrell Bank night sky pages, which are, mm. of course, free to anybody who wants to, to look at those. Is there any advantage in getting some of the more uh, commercial packages, the ones you actually have to pay for? Well, I mean, you do get more... You get more for your money, I guess, with some... With some I mean, you get these big catalogues of, of, of other objects in there, I'm not sure I would necessarily, I mean, I've used one or two of these other things, and, you know, they are, if you have a computer-controlled telescope, for example, you can hook your telescope up to it, and it will talk backwards and forwards with them, for instance, but there's much more stuff in some of these packages you pay for, I'll put it that way, mm. uh, a lot more information, but I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure I, I want to recommend necessarily that people get, probably get one of the free ones first and see how you get on, and if you want to find out more, then you want to have a look at one of these other packages then and sort of upgrade to it, if you like. Right. Okay, well, I think that answers Alex's questions uh, quite yeah. quite nicely, so thank you very much, Tim, for, for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Thanks, Nick and Tim. If you have any questions for Tim, then send them to us via the website at www.jodcast.net. Now, this is the October issue of the Jodcast, and for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, the nights are starting to draw in. That may be bad news if you have to travel to school or work in the dark, but for those of you that want to see the wonders of the night sky, it means that it's darker, and you can observe at a more sociable hour. To find out some of the things to look forward to in this month's night sky, it's over to Ian Morrison. Well, let's have a look at the night sky in October. In fact, the autumn is really a very nice time to observe the heavens. It gets darker a bit earlier, and the Milky Way runs basically from north to south in the early evening and could look absolutely beautiful if you can get yourself to a really dark sky location. In the Milky Way and over to the west, but fairly high up early evening, are the constellations of Cygnus and Lyra. Below them is the constellation of Aquila the Eagle. Now each has a bright star, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila. They form what is called the Summer Triangle, but still easily visible in the autumn. And uh, one nice thing to look for is if you take some binoculars and sweep upwards from Altair towards Lyra and Vega, you should see a little asterism called Brocky's Cluster, or the Coat Hanger, because it looks like a little coat hanger upside down. Moving towards the south, is the constellation of Pegasus, the winged horse, which we actually see upside down in the Northern Hemisphere. There's a very nice little bit of star hopping that should, with a pair of binoculars, easily bring you to observe M31, the Andromeda Galaxy, the nearest giant galaxy to us, at about 2.5 million light-years distance. Start from the top left-hand corner of the square of Pegasus. It's actually Alpha Andromedae, or Alpharats. Then sweep round and up to the left two bright stars till you come to Beta Andromedae. At that point, turn sharp right. Move one bright star 
not quite as bright as Beta Andromedae, to the right, and the same distance again, you should see a little fuzzy glow in the sky. Easy with binoculars, and on a really dark night around New Moon, you could probably see it too with your unaided eye. That's the galaxy M31. Well worth looking for. In fact, another way to find it is to start from the constellation that's above it, Cassiopeia. It's a W shape. If you take the V made by the three lower right-hand stars, they act as a pointer that brings you down towards M31 as well. So that's two ways to find it. A nice sight to look at with a pair of binoculars. There's another interesting thing in between Cassiopeia and Perseus. It's called the double cluster, and on a dark night you can even see a fuzzy glow with your eyes. Binoculars will show a rather nice little concentration of stars, and a small telescope is a lovely sight. But one thing I'd like to bring your attention to this month is the star Algol in Perseus. It's actually the star that comes towards the arm of Andromeda. And on the Jodrellbank Night Sky website, I'll actually give a little chart, if you care to look at that. Now, Algol is sometimes called the Demon Star. That's because it appears to wink. It's actually an eclipsing binary. And when one star, the larger but less bright one, goes in front of the smaller but brighter star, the brightness drops quite considerably. It's very easily observable. Just compare its brightness with the nearby stars. Now, this month, there are two of these minima that are quite well-timed. On the 19th, it should have a minima at 22.25, that's universal time, and on the 22nd, at 19.14. So, 10 o'clock and then 7 o'clock um, throughout uh, two, two times this month. That's worth looking out for, too. Below Pegasus is Aquarius, and close to Lambda Aquarii, one of the brightest stars in Aquarius, is the little planet Uranus. And again, with binoculars, or even on a very dark, clear night, your eye, you could try and find that. Again, I've put a star chart on the Jodrellbank Night Sky page to help you do that. I actually looked at Andromeda just the other night with a very small telescope, a lovely turquoise green disk. Quite small, just four arc seconds across, but it made my nights observing, so do have a try. Okay, let's say a little bit about some of the other planets. To be honest, it's not a very good month for planet hunting, I have to say. Um, Jupiter, still quite bright, sets quite soon after the sun and is very low in the west just before sunset. So even though I looked at it the other night again, the image quality wasn't at all good, but it can be seen. Um, around the 25th of October, it's in conjunction, it's very close to the planet Mercury. And there's also a thin crescent moon on the 25th. So that might be a nice thing to look out for. But essentially, Jupiter is past its best. It's just visible for a short while after sunset. Saturn, on the other hand, has come round from behind the sun and is now rising at about 3 o'clock. But by the end of the month, partly due to the change of time from British summer time to universal time, or what many of you know as Greenwich Mean Time, it actually arises just after midnight. But then, of course, it's fairly low. It's much, much better to look for it in the hour or so before dawn, if you can get up, when it's relatively high in the east. The rings of Saturn change their aspect as it orbits around the sun, 
and they're currently closing. They're only about 15 degrees from the horizontal, so we don't see it quite as bright or perhaps quite as beautiful as we sometimes do, but it's still well worth looking out for. So that's Saturn. Look for that before dawn. Venus and Mars, I think we have to forget this month. You might just pick up Venus before sunrise in the first week of October. Not worth doing it. Look for Saturn instead. And Mars, I'm afraid, is completely behind the sun this month, so no hope of seeing that at all. I did just mention little Mercury. Mercury reaches its greatest elongation from the sun towards the end of October, but I'm afraid the angle is such that it's relatively low above the horizon, but it will be seen close to Jupiter and the thin crescent moon on the 25th of October. And again, on the night sky page, I've given a star chart. So enjoy your views of the heavens. The planets, I'm afraid, aren't at their best this month, so perhaps look at some of the other objects in the sky. There's a lot you can see just with your eyes or a pair of binoculars. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian. As always, Ian puts the full details of what you can see each month on his Night Sky pages, which are linked to from the Jodcast website. Just go to www.jodcast.net and click on the links to get through to this month's show notes. Talking of the Jodcast website, this month we've added a new search feature, which lets you search through all the previous shows and parts of shows to find your favourite bits. Check it out at www.jodcast.net. As ever, we'd love to hear your feedback about the show. Send praise, criticism and bad astronomy jokes to us via the website. Or if you're in the UK, call 0161 408 1442. Or if you have Skype, try Skyping us at The Jodcast. That's all one word, The Jodcast. And that just leaves me time to say thank you to Nick Rattenbury, Tim O'Brien, Ian Morrison, Hannah Thrall and David Alt. In the intro, Eric Busby was Brad, Amanda Fitzwater was Janet, Miles Reed was the butler and David Alt was the narrator. Of course, no attempt has been made to infringe or supersede any existing copyright regarding the Rocky Horror Picture Show by Richard O'Brien, who, of course, is not related to Tim O'Brien. And that brings us to the end. I hope you'll join us next month, but until then, goodbye. There are some people who say that life is an illusion and that reality is simply a figment of our imaginations. If this is so, then Brad and Janet are quite safe. However, the sudden departure of their host and his creation had left them with a deeper knowledge of the universe and more insights into the world of astronomy. And having been to the website at judcast.net and with the previous nine issues of the Judcast to choose from, well, it would be a downloading session that they would remember for a very, very long time.